Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. Follow the link in the description to pre-order a copy of the book so you'll be the first to receive it on the release date of September 1st, 2022. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 48 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we discuss what it means to have a circular product range as a company and how you get there. If you aren't sure what that means or even what a circular economy really is, that's okay. My guest, Nicholas Bornling, overviews all of this and much, much more. Nicholas is an international Swede that has lived and worked in France and the United States and is currently living in Portland, Oregon. Married to an amazing woman from Portland and father of two boys, he has spent most of his career in the outdoor and sports industries. Together with sailing and skiing, one of his biggest passions is the concept of a brand and how this intangible thing can connect on an emotional level with people. He hates the word consumer and envies people who believe. One day, he'll start a blog and it will be called, I don't know. As a reminder, we are only a few weeks out from the Outdoor Minimalist book release and it will hit store shelves on September 1st. People that pre-ordered their copies a while back have already begun receiving them, so if you also want to get one as soon as possible, pre-order a copy today. There is a link to the publisher website in the episode notes, or you can head over to theoutdoorminimalist.com for more buying options. If you want a chance to win a copy of the Outdoor Minimalist book for free, then head over to Instagram and enter into our Adventure Dog giveaway this week. To celebrate the release of the book, I am hosting an Instagram-only giveaway from August 8th to August 12th. Not only can you enter for a chance to win a pre-ordered copy of the Outdoor Minimalist book, but you will also have a chance to win The Essential Guide to Hiking with Dogs by Jen Sotolongo, some Neobites meal toppers, a Lava Linens mini towel, and a special gift from Crag Dog Custom Canine Equipment. All you have to do to enter the Adventure Dog giveaway is head over to Instagram and go to outdoor.minimalist.book, like that initial post, follow all of the participating partners, and tag a dog-loving friend that you love to adventure with in the comments. There is an extra bonus entry option, so head over to Instagram when you have a chance and find out how to do that. The giveaway closes at midnight Pacific time on Friday, August 12th, and is only open to United States residents. The winner will receive a direct message from me from the Outdoor Minimalist account at outdoor.minimalist.book on Monday, August 15th. Supercharge your dog's mealtime with Neobites Functional Dog Food Toppers. Neobites unlocks the unique power of cricket protein to promote firm poops, a thick and shiny coat, and everyday vitality for your pup. With a powder format, these toppers can easily be mixed into existing foods to make mealtime more exciting. Cricket, a hypoallergenic and humane protein, is not only a better option for your pup, but it's better for the planet too. 
producing virtually no greenhouse gases and using fractions of the resources used by traditional proteins. Check out Neobytes products on Amazon and at eatneobytes.com. Use the discount code CRICKET15 for 15% off your next order. And then use the code OUTDOORMINIMALIST for 10% off every order after that. So thank you for joining me today, Nicholas. I am super excited to dive into the topic of circular systems in general and how that applies in the outdoor industry. But before we get to all of that, can you tell me a little bit more about your love of outdoor recreation, where that came from, and what some of your current favorite outdoor activities include? Uh, Sure. Well, I grew up in Sweden on the west coast of Sweden, basically right by the ocean. So the water uh, was probably my first outdoor activity. I grew up sailing, actually. My dad was a big sailor and he even built a little cradle from the sort of the ceiling of the sailing boat where I was in when I was literally two weeks old. <laughs> I sailed my whole life, really. And at the age of like eight, I started racing sailboats myself. And that's been one of the biggest loves of my whole life. But I also grew up skiing as a Swede. You ski, right? You either cross-country ski or you downhill ski. And for my family, we always headed up to the mountains and did some downhill skiing. And that's something that stuck with me throughout my whole life as well. But, you know, at one point you get a family and you get kids. So all of a sudden my outdoor activities aren't as extreme as they used to be. So now it's more kind of like taking the dog and the two boys and going hiking and and things like that. That's awesome. I have not met very many people that are really into sailing and it always seemed like a really interesting and kind of scary endeavor. (laughs) Do you still do that now or just mostly? Oh, okay. Yeah, I do. I do. I I wish I'd do much more of it, but I I still compete. I sail uh, a little boat called a laser which is a a dinghy, actually the Olympic class for both men and women. I'm now now sort of the old guy. And uh, so I sail on the the master circuit, which means that I must be older than 35. That's what I'm going to give you now, Megan. I am older than 35. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, right now, actually, I should have been down in Mexico uh, sailing uh, the master's world championship, but life happened and I'm not there. But I I try to go sailing a couple of times per week, maybe. Oh, that's awesome. Outdoor recreation, it seems like that has been a really consistent part of your life. So it seems really natural that you kind of ended up working in the outdoor industry. So can you talk a little bit about your role in the outdoor industry and kind of how you got to that place? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was very lucky. I think that's been one of the themes of my career, uh, having a bunch of luck slipping on a piece of banana peel and kind of landing in the right spot. But it was never obvious for me that I would be working in the outdoor industry. I'm not even sure I really knew that it existed. That sounds probably crazy, but I went to business school and I didn't know what I was doing at business school. I was not very interested, honestly, in business. I'm not really that sure if I'm all that interested in numbers and money, even today, 25 years later. I actually started out working in in advertising and then I got really lucky. Somebody at a recruiting company had found my resume lying around somewhere and uh, they were looking for a marketing role locally for Salomon in Sweden. And they called me up and I, I couldn't believe that the job existed. Like, what? Really? 
I could combine what I actually spent four years doing in business school with one of my biggest loves, which is, you know, outdoor activity, skiing and snowboarding and hiking, running. Someone does a lot of different things. And it was just a match. And I got the job pretty much the same day. And that was my first boss, who today remains one of my dearest friends. So I got lucky and it was never obvious for me. But as soon as I found out, and when I was sent down to our headquarters in the middle of the French Alps in a little place called Annecy, not very far away from Chamonix, and the taxi drove in over the mountain pass, and I saw this green blue lake surrounded with mountains. And there was Solomon's headquarter with 500 people working on all this amazing gear. I just understood that I, I gotta, I gotta continue doing this, and I, I gotta get moved down here somewhere. And you don't work with Solomon anymore. So when did that transition to working with Houdini happen? Was that the job directly after working with them, or when did you make the move to the United States? Yeah, I stayed with Solomon for 15 years, so long period of time, very formative. Probably learned most of what I apply today during those years. But I actually met my wife at a sales meeting in Chamonix, and, and she is from Portland, Oregon. She used to work at the snowboarding offices that we had here in, in Portland. And we dated from Annecy to Portland for one and a half years. Just amazing that we managed to get through that. And then eventually, after many different things happening, she moved to me and we decided to create a family and, and get married and all that stuff. And exactly at that point, Adam Forrest from the Forrester Group, who has done a lot of recruiting in the in the U.S. outdoor industry, called me about a job at Black Diamond in Salt Lake City. And it was just perfect timing. Got lucky again. So we moved over there and started our life. And my career in the U.S. was really started with Black Diamond. And then I did a few other things that involves selling baseball caps, New Era cap in Western New York, Buffalo, and a little stint in the Bay Area, a little stint at Keen Footwear as well. But during all this period of time, almost 20 years, I've known this amazing woman whose name is Eva Carlson. And Eva was running Houdini, is one of the main shareholders of Houdini. And we worked together back in the day at Salmon. And we always said that one day we, we've got to do something together. And right after the pandemic, she called me up and said, you know, is this a good time to do something together? And, and I was like, yes and no. We got two boys. We live in Portland, Oregon, pretty far away from Stockholm. But yeah, I guess the pandemic has shown us that we can basically work from anywhere. So that's where I kicked it off. It's almost two years ago now. Wow, yeah. That's kind of really feels full circle to be <laughs> for you anyway. And now that you're working with Houdini, can you tell us a little bit more about your role with them? And it's, it feels like maybe it differs from a lot of your roles in the past, but you're able to apply a lot of the things that you learned working in the industry. So can you just kind of talk about that? And then maybe also what their main focus is? Yeah, most of the companies that I've worked for are big international global organization, very often matrix organization where the brand is just part of a, a bigger group with multiple brands in and you work cross-functionally and you spend 50% of your working time managing the matrix, basically doing politics. And 
you know, at one point of your career, you're probably all excited about the next move you're going to do and what you achieved and proving yourself and all those kinds of things. But for most people, including myself, at least, you get to a point where you've done a game and the game is no longer important, doesn't really mean anything. And, you know, for me, that was exactly the case. And Houdini provided and Eva and Hannah, the two owners provided me with an opportunity to connect something meaningful to me and my career and my life, which is figuring out how to solve the environmental crisis that this planet is going through, that humanity currently is going through. So yeah, what do I do? Well, I still do marketing, I still do brand stuff. I'm a student of the brand ever since a young age have I been totally fascinated by this construct, this intangible thing called a brand and how that can be so important to people and how it can connect on an emotional level and, and all that stuff and the psychology of it, the history, the, the storytelling. All of those things are things that I'm working on still today. However, the reason for doing it is very different at Houdini than it has been at any other company that I've ever been before. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Like what about it is different? Yeah. I mean, previously in every company that I work for, it's been about delivering results and it's been about delivering return on investments for shareholders, which is an interesting part of the capitalistic system that we're acting in today. And by the way, one of the things that we truly believe it's an overhaul needs to get an upgrade, an update. I mean, Houdini, we exist really only for one thing and it is to reconnect people to nature again and that sounds you know just like three words basically but they are really meaningful to us they really mean something and it's the reason why we all at Tadini wake up in the morning and go to work we're here to try to inspire and educate and share our knowledge with not just the outer industry or the fashion industry but you know even the larger textile industry and beyond that too not just showing business that it's possible to conduct a circular business, even a regenerative business for that case, and still staying in business and still employing people and still keeping the lights on. And that's when you've got kids and you see the effects that business have had on the planet and you know that you're going to give these kids the keys to go out and live, but the keys you're giving them aren't really working any longer. So I, I feel responsible. I feel obligated to do what I can do to improve for not just my own kids, but everybody next generations that are coming to live really great lives. Yeah, I love that. Would you say that is kind of the long version of Houdini's mission statement? Yeah. I mean, we, as most companies, you have this, like you have your vision and your mission and your values and all that stuff. When we talk about a picture or a vision of the future, we say we would like to provide the maximum experiences ever possible to people and doing that with a net positive impact on, on the environment and people. And that's important right there. I said a net positive impact. I think most companies would be very happy to report that they had zero impact, which is great. But I'm kind of wondering why would you stop at zero impact? And why would you actually stay in business if that was your goal? Shouldn't business be providing a net 
positive impact on people and planet. And if it doesn't do that, then what is the reason for staying in business other than making money? Right. Yeah. And hearing you say being net positive, I feel like that is not (laughs) commonly stated. Like you said, the goal is kind of to be zero impact, which is still important. But I feel like getting to that point, it sounds really difficult to me. And maybe it's just because I haven't seen it a lot in practice. So how does Houdini actually do that? And How do you, I guess, like justify creating more products by following that mission? Yeah, you had two questions in there and let's let's separate the two. You were referring to the latter part was, you know, how do you justify creating new product? And that's a really good question and an important one, but I'm going to park that one and get back to it again. How do we do it? Well, one, we are not there. We are not having even a zero impact at this point. We're moving towards it, and hopefully when we've achieved that, we are going to move to creating a positive impact. But the first step is obviously to look at your core business, which is you know create, manufacture, and sell apparel. And currently, as we all know, the system is a linear one, which is, you know, in other words, take, make, and throw away, right? That's linear, which means that you extract resources from the planet and you refine them and then basically as a business you are done at that point right or you've you've sold the product to a person and then you're done you're freeing yourself from the responsibility at that point of anything and that only in there is there so much to be done because business needs to be responsible for bringing those resources back again into a system so you move then on to the next thing which is circularity and circularity can be achieved in multiple different ways if you know you look at the outer industry we tend to love polyester based fibers because it's a great fiber and it has a lot of advantages it is extracted from oil though which obviously is a big problem but the fiber in itself and there is plenty of it to go around to make a lot of new shell jackets for the next 50 years to come but we need to learn to make them recyclable. First step is to make them out of recycled fabric. There are multiple companies and brands out there today that are trying to do that. Most companies, however, release a capsule collection. It's a way to show their vision through a capsule of something that has been recycled and then use that as a way to communicate and market yourself and position yourself with the intent of being looked upon as a sustainable company. But really, and to be quite frank and honest, it's pure greenwashing because the rest of the 99% of the products that are done remain linear. At Houdini, everything that is polyester-based is recycled. We also make stuff out of natural fibers, which is a different story, but let's stick with polyester for a moment. And then... Great, you've used recycled polyester fibers and you've created a product, but what next? And the next thing is that you need to design a product so that it is recyclable. And you also need to provide the user with a way of returning that product so that you can recycle it, either chemically or mechanically, preferably mechanically. But most stuff today that are made of polyester-based fibers aren't designed in a way that it is even possible to mechanically separate the components from each other. So just listen, people, whoever is listening to this one, 
look at the product and see if it is recyclable. Because if it isn't, then the product that you will be buying is just an extension of the line. It's not circular. And that's where we've spent the last 15 years, because Houdini has actually been around for quite a while, to find a way to make the product fully circular. And it's a journey. It's a, it's a difficult one. It's an expensive endeavor. Margins are thin, but we have to do it, right? We have no other choice than that. And at this point, depending on when you would ask me this question, Megan, how much of your product range is circular, I believe we are today somewhere around 92% circularity. And we need to go to 100%. We have a ways to go to figure those last 7 8%. Yeah, so I guess... Just hearing you kind of talk about that process, the main question that kind of came to my head is when Houdini started, did it start with that same intention and how much has it shifted over the years? Well, there are two phases of Houdini's history. It was actually started by a a woman, Lotta, back in Stockholm in the mid-90s. She was a mountain guide and she couldn't find products that would suit her needs and wants. Basically, she saw lots of large gaps in the offer. And it lasted for about five, six years. And then the company had financial problems. And at that point, that's when the current owners, Eva and Hannah, came in, found a company, bought a majority stake in the company. And in 2000, 2001, the sort of modern history of Houdini starts. And that was the starting line for creating something truly regenerative. You could say that, yes, it's been part of Houdini's vision and mission and values base since day one, yes. Okay, so if it has been part of that value system, it doesn't mean that like in practice throughout all of those years, you are necessarily achieving all of those things. Because like you said, you're still trying to reach that 100% circular, you're at 92 right now, which is awesome. But then going from where Houdini started originally how have you gotten to the place in a very practical way? <laughs> How have you gotten here? I actually think, Megan, that I am probably not going to be the best person to ask that question. I think we should probably have Eva or Hannah, preferably Eva, because she's been part of the company for the last 20 years to fully trace the steps to get there. I, I mean, I can speak very sort of shallowly about it yeah that's fine i mean just like i feel like in the last section where you're speaking it was really informative but like maybe a little bit more conceptual and so like if we're looking at just houdini as just a company as a standalone like what have been some of your steps that have really helped move the needle towards 100 all right so we needed to make sure that we sourced fibers that were recycled from the beginning and finding the right suppliers for that was a big, big step. And then integrating that into our supply chain and manufacturing system. Working with only Blue Sign certified suppliers is another aspect of circularity that we've brought in. And now we're happy to say that pretty much everything that we use in terms of fibers, textiles, and other components are Blue Sign certified as well. A third piece that was very tricky was to find a way to face out the very harmful chemical PFAS. I don't know if the listener, Megan, knows what a PFAS is. Yeah, you can explain it if you'd like. Okay, I'm going to try my best. Okay. (laughs) So PFAS is a very popular 
compound or a chemical that was developed, I think, back in the 70s or something like that, as a repellent, a water repellent, or a repellent for a lot of different fluids, could be even fat and grease and oil. Most frying pans that you may have used are, are using Teflon, and in Teflon you'll find PFAS. The downside, uh, because the advantages with PFAS are great, especially in the outdoor industry, we tend to use a lot of it. Most shell systems are treated with what's called a DWR treatment, which is a water repellency treatment that is applied on top of the fabric to repel water away from your jacket or your pants. The negatives and the downsides with it is that it's a very complex, long carbon-based molecule that basically never breaks down in nature and it leaches out too so every time you would be washing your shelves or even when it's raining on it it leaches these chemicals into nature and living organisms pick them up they enter into your system and they cause cancer really bad really really bad for you everybody should know about this We've known for quite a while, and we started phasing out PFAS already in 2014, way ahead of anybody really knowing if it was dangerous or why it was bad or anything like that. And it took us four years of research, exploration, work with suppliers to find a way to replace PFAS as a DWR treatment. And we have that since 2018, and meaning that 100% of all our products are free of PFAS now. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the most common thing that I would envision in my head that people would be aware of that has PFAS is like the Gore-Tex. Anything that has Gore-Tex, I think, uses that. And if people want to learn more about the dangers of that and the waterproof coatings, they can go back and listen to episode 39, where we talk about all solvent-based coatings versus water-based coatings. So just out of curiosity, what do you use instead? We have a membrane that's called Atmos, which is a third party. And we combine that with a DWR treatment from a company called Organotex, which is a water-based biodegradable DWR treatment. And it works really well. I have just recently started to kind of learn about those water-based coatings with things. But honestly, I think you would probably be the first company that I've heard of that has a way that they've applied it into clothing. Because you did that. Is it with clothing, I'm assuming? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So other than that PFAS change, which is really huge and great, I think that that is a really good example of like identifying a problem and then like being kind of a front runner in making that change. And hopefully other companies will see this and follow suit and realize the dangers involved in those types of coatings. But I guess kind of moving forward in Houdini's evolution here, you have basically 8% left to reach 100% circular. So going 8% and beyond, what does that kind of look like? Well, this is a really tricky one for us. And we're always completely transparent about things. But we have one product, one style that is our best-selling, our longest-lasting product that has been with us basically since day one of the modern history of, of Houdini. And it's an absolutely amazing product. It, functionally, it's amazing. But at this point, we 
just cannot get that one to be fully circular. So we're working with the supplier, which is one of our closest partners and dear friend, really, on a supply chain level, to find a way to make the fabric so that it is circular and recyclable afterwards. And also introducing styles that we hope will become really popular. So it's like, it's a weird conundrum, right? Because People love this piece. It's really important for us to stay alive and stay in business. But we know that the easiest way to get to 100% would basically be to stop making it and stop selling it. But that would not be very good for ourselves and as employees. So we're trying our best together with our fabric supplier to get this one style to become fully circular. Yeah, I think that that's a good place to kind of address the question that we tabled earlier on is how do you decide when a product deserves to be in existence? Yeah, that's just as important as having your product range being circular is to ask yourself a few key questions before you set out to make anything. And the question is, does this product deserve to exist? We ask that question for every new product that we make that and six other questions too that i'm happy to share with you but if the answer is no because there is already a product out there and it is great and it is doing all the things that a user needs it to do and we don't see any way of improving on it then we won't make it i I don't know many companies that would ever say that because you know the differentiator between one product and another product in most cases is the brand that goes on to it and i'm the first one to be responsible for that because i'm a brand person i just love that idea but we are a little bit more radical than that and that's why we ask these questions and we ask a bunch of other things and the reason is that short term we think that the biggest issue we have to the environmental crisis is overconsumption. And that's going to loop us right back to that product that we can't get to be circular right now, because what we know is that in the Western world today, on average, any given garment that is bought today in the Western world is used on an average seven to 10 times before it's being discarded. In some way, it either ends up in the back of your wardrobe and you will never see it until the next time you move or you throw it away seven to ten times. We make in the world every year a hundred billion pieces of apparel and they're used on average seven to ten times. That is insane if you just imagine the mountain of product that is made every year and how much of it is never really used. So getting as much utility as ever possible out of each and every garment may be the most important aspect for sustainability. And I'm going to say that word very few times because it's a dangerous one. So we have this one product that I was referring to previously, and we did a bit of research on that one. And we found out that on average, it was used 1,287 times over a span of about 10 years. That's a hundred times more than the average garment. And even though that piece is not circular in nature, the fact that this is the one product that people seem to be using day after day after day, for so many different things in their life is absolutely amazing. And if every company that would be making apparel and textile 
would be thinking about their stuff in that same way, that mountain of 100 billion pieces of apparel wouldn't be 100 billion any longer. So we ask ourselves, will this garment last long enough? Is it designed for durability from the beginning? Is it versatile enough? I know I'm on a podcast called The Outdoor Minimalist, but we actually don't really look at ourselves as an outdoor brand because that means that the stuff that you're making is made only to do outdoor activities and that's limiting that's not versatile enough for us we look at our, the stuff that we make and we call it functional life wear that means we build in the functionality for you to be able to do multiple things and live in that garment you should be able to hike and ski and run and kayak and bike commute and go to the office, pick up your kids, watch TV, whatever you do. That piece should not look like or feel like or be limiting you to one or two or three uses only. That's not good enough. That's what versatility is. Will that piece age with beauty? Will it get better and better? You know your favorite sweater, right? How it just seems to fit you better and better for every time you wear it or even look better and better. This idea of patina that the marks and the little scuff marks and little repair marks and, and the little stain are all marks of experiences of lives that are really well lived. We think we need to design our stuff so that that can happen naturally. Do we add stuff that isn't needed? Absolutely not. In general, we have a design philosophy, which is all about subtraction. We tend to take away things. We know that we can probably make another percentage point if we add another zipper, because it gives us something to talk about and it gives the sales reps something to talk about. It gives the shop employees something to sell. But in most cases, that zipper really isn't needed for the functionality of that garment. So we tend to delete that zipper instead. Can the products that we make, can it be shared? Can it be repaired? Can it be remade? Can it be resolved afterwards? Is the garment designed in a way that it naturally lends itself for these things? And last but not least, does it have a next life solution already baked into it, already thought about before you sell it? That's the seven questions that we ask ourselves before we make anything. And that's why we have a very small product range at the end of the day. We've had almost the same basic product lineup for the last 10, 15 years. It's rare that we make anything new. So yeah, that's a long one, Megan. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope it makes sense. No, it does. Yeah, I feel like it really truly embodies minimalism and its application to product design, which is really interesting to hear about because I feel like from a consumer standpoint, you have such a narrow view into a brand and into the products you're actually buying. So kind of like hearing about that process and I'm sure it differs across the board with different companies and industries and all of that. But all of the questions that you said, I feel like can be applied to anything. So yes, it is a great like starting point, I feel and a good place for reflection if you are a business owner or if you are trying to create a business or create anything for that matter. Those are all like really good introspective questions to kind of like propel yourself forward and make positive changes. So 
With that, would you have any other resources or things that you could share with people that would be kind of in that realm, like people that maybe work in business, maybe in a position like yours, or maybe they are the product creators, or they're just looking to kind of be an entrepreneur? What would you say if they are in that position and they also want to pursue a circular system within their company or even the net positive that you were talking about? We would love that. That's one of the biggest reasons for our existence is to share knowledge. We're kind of like the Linux of apparel. It's, it's sort of like open source code. We don't believe in intellectual property, really. We don't really believe in trade secrets because the fundamental rule for progress is sharing knowledge. It has to happen. And if you keep things to yourself, then and especially if it is something that's really good for humanity and the future of this planet, we would never even consider doing that. As an example, we um, we launched a new product, uh, what is it, a year and a half ago right now. And it was a collaboration between us and Polartech, which is one of our closest, most long-standing partners in fabric development. And it was an attempt together to find a way to reduce microfiber shedding. And uh, you probably know that that's a big issue, especially for fleece product, because the fleece in general isn't contained. So anytime that you wash it or it rains heavily on it or it's abrasion or friction or whatever it is, it sheds microfibers and the microfibers leaches out into the water, into fish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Really bad stuff. And so together with Polartec, we found a way to contain about 85% of the microfiber that would normally leach out anytime you wash it. And we designed a product around it and we commercialized it and, and put it to the market and we did it completely open source. So if you're interested, you can actually just go to our website right now and you'll see exactly how we made that product. We even detail uh, the components that went into it. And we would be more than happy to take any calls to set up a conference. To We do it all the time. Our founder or our CEO, Eva, is um, in general, what she does most of her time is speaking to businesses, speaking to students. I do the same thing here in Portland. We have an amazing sports design education founded by uh, this woman, Susan Sokolowski, who had a long, long tenure at Nike. And I was invited to go and talk to the design students at, at this education to inspire and, and, and just be a knowledge partner. So hit me up. Feel free to share my email address, Megan. Not a problem. We also have a lot of what I've been speaking to today. It's already on our website free to download, free to consume. That's awesome. Yes, I will definitely share those resources in the episode notes. So along with your website and then reaching out directly, how can listeners learn more about Houdini and your products and the systems other than what you already mentioned? We are on, surprise, surprise, we're on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that is by far our most important platform. But we do share a lot of stuff through LinkedIn too. So if you're interested, I would definitely follow us on LinkedIn. There are ways of contacting us and the people that are working there through LinkedIn as well. We're very interested in the professional community in general, as we want to share our information. This seems to be one of the most important platforms. So Instagram and LinkedIn, primarily those two, and then our website. 
Awesome. That's great. I don't have really much more for you right now. I feel like I learned a lot. There was a lot of really good information in the episode. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. I'm excited to kind of dive into your website and learn even more. But with that, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for inviting us and and myself, Megan. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can still find me on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book for daily updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with a shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.